most clinicians have no training on compassion fatigue. As mental health professionals, they're not teaching us about this, right? The physicians that I've worked with, they don't teach it in med school. The nurses that I've worked with, they don't teach it in nursing school. The educators that I've worked with never heard of compassion fatigue. Like they never knew it was a thing until they landed in session with me. And I was like, hey, let's talk about this compassion fatigue thing. Um, and, and so there really is this lack of awareness and knowledge of what's going on. And so we tend to internalize it and just blame ourselves and think that if we quit and, you know, maybe join a cruise ship as like a Disney character, <laughs> that it'll fix everything. Um, and and it, it doesn't fix everything. Welcome back to the You Need a Counselor podcast. This is a show presented by Heart and Solutions Counseling Agency. We release new episodes every Sunday at 5 p.m. Central and encourage you to batch up that laundry, put away the dishes, plan for the week ahead, or do any other task that might seem daunting while you give our show a listen. You might just be encouraged to call your therapist, connect with this week's guest, or seek out those services you've been considering for a while but haven't made the commitment to yet. If you are in the state of Iowa and are in need of mental or behavioral health counseling, give us a call at 1-800-531-4236. Enjoy the show. Hello, welcome back to the You Need a Counselor podcast. My name is Dr. Julie Johnson. I'm the president and founder here at Heart and Solutions Counseling Agency in Iowa. And I'm Krista Hunt. I am our vice president in charge of the behavioral health department where we work with children ages four through 18 on different behavioral skills. And this is our podcast, You Need a Counselor. So we are designed for people curious about counseling that have barriers keeping them from experiencing the benefits of counseling. Our mission is to share stories about counseling, good, bad, and indifferent, and spread the message that everyone can benefit from mental health and behavioral health counseling services. And our guest today joins us from, normally I would say sunny Florida, but I've heard cloudy, rainy Florida. Uh, we are, we've had here. an odd winter. It, it, it's always interesting, the weather. So our guest today joins us from Florida, uh, but she is also a licensed mental health counselor in Florida, Oregon, and in the state of Washington. We've got Natasha D'Archangelo with us today. Uh, in Florida, she is a qualified supervisor. She is a nationally certified counselor, and she has several different certifications that she utilizes in her practice and in her consulting uh, that are very, very uh, focused on being able to help people uh, that are professionals in this field. So she does a lot of coaching with counselors. And so I always think it's interesting to uh, talk to people who are not only work with uh, general public and our counselors themselves, but also people who have an understanding of the challenges that counselors go through mm -hmm. as well. And so many of your certifications uh, really point to that, that area of interest. Um, so first of all, welcome. Thank you so much for being here, Natasha. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So now one of your certifications is you are a certified clinical trauma professional. Can you tell us what that is and how you utilize that in your work? Sure. So that is a training that I took through PESI. I know we're all familiar with PESI, um, specifically with Dr. Eric Gentry. And you'll hear me say his name a lot. Um, he's my professional hero and his work really changed the way that I approach my work with clients. Um, the CCTP designation, Certified Clinical Trauma Professional, is really about helping clients come to an understanding of their own nervous system and how trauma plays a role in their responses to many things. Oftentimes we have clients that come to us and they say, uh, you know, I'm broken, I'm defective. This thing happened 20 years ago. Why, why am I not over it yet? And I put that in air quotes because you don't ever get over a trauma. Um, but I think it's a lot of psychoeducation. Clients just don't understand that that doesn't mean that they're broken and helping to destigmatize their own responses and really um, learn to work with their nervous system rather than against their nervous system. That's really the foundation for that CCTP work. So, yeah. And it's really cool because I'm also working on my certification in brain spotting. And so to kind of combine those two pieces, trauma is really like a area of passion of mine. Um, and, and just 
it's so gratifying to be able to see clients that come to me really struggling, really in a dark place, be able to take ownership and, you know, do things like start dating again, or go out to Walmart and not have a panic attack. And, um, you know, it's just that that's what we keep coming back for. (laughs) So yeah. Can you kind of give us some background on what brain spotting is? Oh, sure. I could talk brain spotting all day. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. So brain spotting is um, a field of therapy founded by Dr. David Grand. And he was an EMDR clinician. Uh, Once upon a time, he created uh, free flow EMDR. And what it is, it's really helping clients through the use of um, attunement, right? The, 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 the clinician really being attuned to the client, helping them find the area in their brain where whatever particular trauma they happen to be working on that day um, lives in their brain and just being present with them and just sharing that space. Because um, as Dr. Grant loves to say, and it's all over the website, uh, where you look affects how you feel. And until you do a brain spotting session, that's not something that you're really aware of how it's connected. What I love about brain spotting is a few things. Um, Number one, it's very organic. No two sessions are ever alike, even with the same client, even with the same issue. And it's very client driven. And as a clinician, my approach is never that I'm the expert. My clients are the expert in their own lives. They know themselves way better than I will ever know them, even if I have the privilege of working with them for for a longer period of time. And it really taps into their ability to initiate their own healing. I just happen to be there to help facilitate that. And I just, it really is an art form, um, which I know sounds a little hippy dippy, but I, I just really have been blown away by some of the results that I've gotten. Um, we've gotten to places in trauma where it's taken me a couple of sessions, what in talk therapy maybe would have taken me a year to be able to accomplish. Um, so I encourage everybody brainspotting.com and, and find yourself a brain spotting clinician. I'm not done with my sessions yet. I have to collect some more sessions before I'm officially certified. I mean, I can practice it. I'm just, I uh, don't have the certification designation and it's open, not just to mental health professionals. When I did my training, uh, there was an acupuncturist in my class. There was a midwife in my class. There was an end of life doula in my class, um, and again, my personal bias here, I, I think that modalities that are open to helping more people heal is a good thing. <laughs> um, and, you know, because I do think that there can be a lot of gatekeeping in therapy. And it, I think that we all should be here to help more people heal. And if more people feel more comfortable going to an acupuncturist for that, then they should be allowed to tap into that as long as they have the appropriate training. So. Absolutely. I love that. We have talked to, you know, uh, trauma-informed personal trainers and Mm -hmm. trauma-informed, you know, fashion designers. And, uh, and it's just amazing how, how much of our world uh, is impacted by the traumatic experiences that we've had uh, and how each, each area of our life where we may have goals or we may be striving uh, can be helped so dramatically um, by having that acknowledgement of those traumatic uh, symptoms that we may be facing. So if we were looking at uh, a brain spotting session, or if I were to go to a brain spotting session mm-hmm. with you, how might that feel or look different for me as a client than going to a traditional talk therapy session? Sure. So I can, um, do I have a pointer with me? Yes, I do. I always have a pointer because I'm a brain spotter. Um, so what we do is we use a pointer. I have, uh, some more at home, so there's different options, but this is the one that I have in office. And what the client would do is they would say, um, you know, today I want to work on, I got passed up for a promotion at work and it's really bothering me. I, you know, it's playing over in my brain over and over again. And I just, I, I need to be able to sleep again. And I'd say, great. So if that's what we're going to focus on today, um, we're going to find uh, where in their body that's happening for them, as well as um, how much of a activation is that for you on a scale of one to 10? Like, is that a 
at a 10? Are you ready to crawl out of your skin? Are you at a one? Like, where are you? And then depending on the client, there are several different um, frameworks that we would use to set up and help them find their brain spot. But then here's where it differs from traditional talk therapy. I then go quiet once we find the brain spot. And I'll, I, I will say to them something along the lines of, okay, so now I'm going to go quiet and you can share with me as much or as little as you want to for whatever's coming up with you. And for some clients that opens up the floodgates and it's almost like their words can't come out fast enough. But I've also done sessions with clients for 45 minutes where it's almost complete silence. But I can see the processing happening in their eyes. Um, and it's and, and sometimes it's a most more most often it's a combination of those. There are these periods of silence, and then they come back to me because clients will sometimes dissociate during those sessions, and that's okay. We don't freak out when that happens. It means their nervous system is doing what it needs to, and they'll come back. And and so when they come back, I'll say, Well, it looks like you traveled a little bit away. So welcome back. Um, you know, tell me a little bit about uh, anything that's coming up for you that you want to share with me. And so again, very client driven and where we start is not always where we end up. So when my hypothetical, uh, you know, the client decided that they wanted to process being passed over for this promotion. Now, unbeknownst to myself and maybe even the client, that could be connected to something that happened when they were um, three you know, and, and their parent uh, maybe lost them in the middle of a department store. And it may not even be something that they consciously remember. There may have just been stories that they heard about it, but obviously it continues to live in their nervous system. And, you know, through thought talk therapy, we may never have gotten there or it may have taken us a very long time to get there. Whereas in brain spotting, you're kind of cutting through the noise that you put in between yourself and your trauma because, you know, the brain does need to function on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not comfortable to feel those things. Um, but you kind of cut through the noise and get to where those places are in your brain and actually come to a place where it's like, wow, I, a, a lot of the times the comment that I get was clients will say things and they look at me and they're like, I didn't even know that was in there. And, you know, it's like, yeah, well, it was, it is. And, you know, your nervous system has been holding on to it for all this time. And, you know, things don't necessarily resolve in one session. Um, oftentimes it will take a couple of different sessions. But um, you know, the other thing that I really like about it is because it is so client driven, it also gives them the freedom to go to places where they may not otherwise have gone. You know, they don't want to talk about the uh, divorce or the miscarriage. You know, it's just too painful. Um, <clears throat> and so once they've gotten some ground, because I always do grounding, we always talk about grounding before we do any kind of trauma work. Um, I need to know that you're going to be able to bring yourself down if you get to a place where you're feeling overwhelmed. So we always work on those skills first, um, but it gives them the freedom to be able to go to those places that they've been avoiding in some cases for, you know, 40, 50 years. So, yeah, it's really powerful stuff. Yeah. Is it more specifically for clients with trauma in their past then, or could any clients benefit from brain spotting? Um, I think any client can benefit from brain spotting. The, the other thing that we don't oftentimes talk about um, in America, too, is the impact of um, generational trauma. I know there's a lot more science coming out around that and, you know, um, how the history of slavery in this country or the impact of the genocide in North America, um, you know, with the native populations that lived here for centuries um, before Europeans landed and, and how that continues to live on in our gene pool. Um, and brain spotting honors that, you know, oftentimes there are things that happen in utero or ancestrally that excuse me, we're not consciously aware of, but that, that do impact our nervous systems. Um, I had the honor, uh, and I do consider it an honor of doing my trainings, phase one and phase two, uh, BIPOC. And I had never in my life been in, it was a virtual room. Uh, Dr. Gatlin Monroy is based in Atlanta. 
but I'd never been in a room full of only brown faces for a training. And I didn't realize how powerfully it would impact me to have a space of just brown faces um, and, and how much it would really free me to be able to throw myself in headfirst into this training because you learn brain spotting by doing brain spotting. You know, I'm never going to ask a client to walk a journey I've not taken myself. Um, you know, I don't think that that's fair <laughs> or ethical. Um, and, and so when I speak of brain spotting, I speak also of the healing that it's generated for me in my own personal life. Um, you know, it's been really amazing. Some of the insights that I've come to as a result of brain spotting. And one of the things that I worked on was testing. <laughs> you know, my first ever brain spotting session was I, I had to take the Oregon um, jurisprudence exam. And I've had test anxiety for forever. And um, one of my brain spotting sessions was working on that. And I went all the way back to fourth grade, didn't know that that stuff was in there, but my nervous system remembered it. So it doesn't necessarily have to be like, you know, big, heavy trauma stuff. It's, uh, I, I can just so relate with so many of the things that you're saying. Um, I had an experience uh, this past week. My, so I was born in Korea and my uh, daughter is half Korean. And I always tell her that she's half Korean. Uh, however, I don't know that she fully, she's seven. I don't always sure. know that she fully understands what I mean. And, uh, and so she said to me one day, uh, about a month ago, she said, mom, are there other kids that are also half Korean? And I went, oh no, you've never seen, oh. <laughs> uh, you've never seen another <laughs> child in real life who's half Korean or who's, you know, necessarily Korean at all. And so uh, I said, oh my goodness, I, I got to get you to, to Korean culture camp, right? So <laughs> I'm, so I'm looking up these ones and there's one in Minnesota and we're going to go this summer. And, uh, and I was telling her and my husband, these memory, I, I'm trying to explain to her what it's going to be like for her. And I'm explaining to her what it was like for me, because I was adopted uh, at a young age. And so uh, I also did not have people around me uh, that were Korean. And so I would go to this uh, Korean culture camp and I was explaining to her and I said, Monica, it's the weirdest thing everybody there is also <laughs> Korean. It is weird. And I said, this is like what your dad lives his life. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, like, that's what's normal for your dad. I said, it's surreal uh, mm -hmm. to walk into Korean culture camp and have every face, like you said, every face around you is a Korean face and looks, yeah. looks like you. And I said, you know, I, I've never blended in for that reason, but at Korean culture camp, you blend in, right? And mm -hmm. it's just a surreal experience. So uh, I just think that um, so many of the uh, the pieces that you're tapping into, that generational uh, trauma that sometimes gets so suppressed by mm -hmm. for so many of us, because there's this idea or the stigma that like, you weren't even there, right? Correct. Or like, yeah, how could that okay, possibly impact have, like, you? Right, like when something happens with North mm -hmm. Korea, like, why am I so impacted? I'm, I don't live there, you know, like I wasn't sure. there. I, sure. and so, uh, but at the same time, uh, we know our body knows and our, our mind knows. And even those stories, just the relating at that level, when we read history, when we read accounts, uh, of people, uh, when I read accounts of North Koreans, right. I am immediately connected. Mm -hmm. And because of that connection, uh, I do have that similar, I have some of those similar responses. And I think that is so normal. That's something that we do as human beings. But I think that cognitively, mm -hmm. a lot of times we just discount it. You know, we're Absolutely. like, well, that didn't happen to me. Nothing happened to me. Why am I having these symptoms? And it's because, okay, we're human beings. And that's how our brain <laughs> operates uh, and Absolutely. that's how our body operates so I just love that you're normalizing that as well um and I was thinking Krista this is the reason we talk about Encanto all the time <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, the research is kind of like starting to catch up with, yes. with its information yeah. about generational yeah. uh trauma and yep. these things that come through to yep. to us in present day uh so I just think it's it's awesome what you're doing there and and you are also a certified compassion fatigue professional, uh, yep. which really going into your work with providers and counselors, mm -hmm. 
Tell us about what that certification looks like. Sure. So that kind of goes hand in hand with um, also being a certified, uh, you know, forward-facing professional resilience coach and consultant, those kind of things go hand in hand. Again, Dr. Eric Gentry. (laughs) Um, And I, I kind of fell into that work accidentally. So, so at the height of the pandemic, um, I was like, I, we're going to end up with an entire generation of nurses that have PTSD and we already have a broken healthcare system and we can't really afford that. Um, you know, and, and back in like April of 2020, you know, I don't have the skills or the knowledge to, you know, be working on a unit in the ER or something like that, but is there some way that I can help? And I ended up connecting with the Dean of Nursing, um, down in St. Pete, um, shout out to Dr. Luciana. She's amazing. Uh, and she gave me a platform, um, and she and I were doing these, support sessions on Saturday mornings free to any nurses that wanted to come. And it just didn't feel like I was doing enough. It didn't feel like I had enough knowledge. So of course I was like, well, I need more training. Um, and, and so found this course being taught by Dr. Gentry and I'm having taken the CCTP training with him as well as narrative exposure therapy. I was like, Oh, sign me up. Uh, did not know that it was going to transform my life, but I'm glad that it did because it turns out that I've struggled with compassion fatigue at various points in my professional life, never had a word for it, always thought that I was a failure. Um, and, and in my quest to be able to help these nurses, it ended up being, uh, hey, this was you too. And, and you told yourself that you sucked and you were a failure, but it turns out there's actually a name for what was happening to you. And so I've become very that passionate and vocal about it. People probably get tired of me talking about compassion fatigue. And I, I really have the privilege of having gone through the cohort with Dr. Gentry. I am now able to actually teach his research um, to folks. And so when I do CEUs for mental health professionals, it is Dr. Gentry's work that I'm presenting. He's been researching this stuff for over 25 years, has been published in, I think, at least 15 different journals. I'd, I'd have to look that number up. And really helping providers get to a place where they understand that they can choose how long they get to be in this profession. It doesn't have to be, I think the prevailing attitude now is, well, eventually you're going to burn out and, you know, that's going to suck, but that it is what it is. That's what you signed up for. And I think that that's the message that so many of us receive. And um, what, why, (laughs) like, why, why wouldn't we help professionals be sustainable in this field? If there's one thing that COVID shed a light on. It's that we have a shortage of mental health professionals in this country. We absolutely have a shortage of BIPOC professionals in this country. And so why wouldn't we do everything that we can to try to help clinicians come to an understanding of what's going on with them and how they can be sustainable? Because this is very heavy work. I consider it a privilege to do the work that I do. I also recognize that that it's heavy and not everybody is cut out to do what we do on a daily basis, but nobody gets that like other professionals that do what we do. Um, the other great thing about the compassion fatigue stuff is that it really applies to any um, any person that, that carries the caregiver designation. So I'm talking physicians, nurses, veterinarians, um, first responders, law enforcement, hospice care workers, educators. This is a second career for me. I was a teacher once upon a time. Um, And so some of my favorite people to teach compassion fatigue stuff to is the educators. Um, I think because I've been working as a clinician for uh, eight years at this point, holy moly, Uh, (laughs) you know, it kind of came naturally that I have this built-in audience of clinicians, but this really is appropriate for many other fields as well. Can you give some examples of what people who are experiencing compassion fatigue, like how would they know? Absolutely. So one of the things that oftentimes happens is we're struggling with these different symptoms. We don't have a name for it. And so what ends up happening is we just blame ourselves. It's like, oh, um, you know, I, I chose the wrong thing. I should not have I should not have done this. And we we fall into this blame game. And it's a lot of things that, honestly, the people around you are going to notice faster than you will yourself. So you may have your loved ones saying to you, um, 
you know, you just don't really seem like yourself. You feel kind of disconnected. You're, you're turning down offers for us to go do things. Dr. Gentry classifies um, the symptoms of compassion fatigue into five major areas. So there's the physical stuff where, you know, you're tired, you're not sleeping as well. Um, you just feel nervous all the time. You're on edge. It psychologically is the the next um, domain, I guess, would be the appropriate term where you feel numb. Maybe you are struggling with making decisions. Even, you know, uh, do we want pizza or Chinese food for dinner tonight? And your brain is like, I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't deal with that right now. Um, the next domain is emotionally where you may be feeling irritable. You may be feeling overwhelmed all the time. You're dreading going to work. You just, ugh another day I can't bring myself to go in um the next domain is spiritually so you may be avoiding your friends and your family you may be um really having feelings of hopelessness about why like what's the point to any of this and then finally professionally you may be having decreased productivity you've got memories of work following you home you know maybe you're having nightmares about clients or things like that you may be struggling with, um, you know, oof, maybe I need to quit my job. Like maybe that's the only solution here. So there's those five domains. And if any of that resonates with anybody that's listening, um, what I recommend is that you start with the ProQual. So it's P-R-O-Q-O-L. Excuse me. It stands for the Professional Quality of Life. Um, they're on iteration five. So it's the ProQual five right now. But if you go to ProQual.org, there's a free um, online assessment that you can take. I've done it in session with clients before. Um, you can either print it out and then grade it yourself. And whenever I give a presentation, that's always one of the handouts that I offer to folks. But um, they've updated the site and it's really, really easy to just go online. And it takes less than 10 minutes to, to do the assessment, go through the questions. And what it does is it gives you an idea of where your compassion um, fatigue score is as long as uh, along with your compassion satisfaction score and your compassion satisfaction score is the good stuff about why we do what we do it's the stuff that keeps us coming back day after day um and and what the science tells us what the research tells us is that if you have a high compassion satisfaction score it serves as an insulator against those symptoms of compassion fatigue so your work may be difficult your work may be very hard if you really find fulfillment in what you do, that helps to protect you against some of those symptoms of compassion fatigue. So um, that website is proqual.org. And I'm happy to provide that if you want to add it to the show notes. Um, it's a really great resource because it's hard to know if you are even needing help if you don't have a baseline of what you're looking at, right? Um and I personally am a big fan of free things that I can recommend to people. So proqual.org is a really good place to get started. Absolutely. I, I love it too, because it's, it's not only, okay, I'm going to take a quiz or an, an assessment and, you know, get my score and then get my interpretation of my score. Uh, but additionally, I think in taking it and especially in taking it with uh, a trusted other person. So taking it with a coworker or uh, a leader in your group or taking it with uh, somebody that you're, with your counselor, right? Mm -hmm. Taking it and then being able to discuss each of those pieces um, is so important because I mean, any metric uh, is going to have such value in terms of like, okay, well, this is kind of the range that we're in and this is what we might be seeing, but also just being able to, like you said, give language to what's mm -hmm. happening um, to change the narrative from I'm a horrible counselor. I shouldn't have done this. Exactly. Uh, but now I've wasted how many years in grad school, right? So to yep. change that narrative to, oh, I have the, this many symptoms of compassion fatigue coming out, right? Yes, um, exactly. And because when we can name it, we can address it. And mm -hmm. when we can name it, we can take it, the power of it out of our identity. Um, mm -hmm. And so now I'm not a failed 
uh, nurse who hates all of her patients, right? And doesn't even mm-hmm. want to go in uh, to see my patients. No, I'm a great nurse. And because I'm a very empathetic nurse, I've got some compassion fatigue symptomology happening to me, not exactly. I am these things. Uh, and so having those conversations, I think is so helpful and so important. And the satisfaction piece of it, uh, sometimes those scores will be, uh, we'll have a lot of the symptoms of compassion mm-hmm. fatigue. But we'll also have a lot of symptoms or uh, or check uh, a lot of the areas of the satisfaction. And we go, okay, there's something to this, right? Both are happening. I do. I love being a nurse. I love being a firefighter. I love being an EMT. I still get fired up about it. Uh, and I'm having compassion fatigue symptoms. Right? Exactly. And so it helps balance that conversation. I think is so helpful. Yeah. Um, in that. And I love that you are, you're an educator as well in terms of compassion fatigue. So you really mm-hmm. are getting the message <laughs> out there to people. Um, I, I always say, I know, I don't know how to shut off the teacher part of my brain. <laughs> I love that. And I also love the perspective that you bring uh, for teachers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, when we think compassion fatigue, a lot of times we think, mental health, or we think EMTs, right? We think uh, police officers, law enforcement, um, but we don't always think of teachers in there. And teachers are, uh, for so many children, their primary support. Um, And so, you know, what happens to our students uh, happens to us in so many ways emotionally when we have that empathy. And that's one of the things that makes a teacher so great is that a teacher who cares about her students and has that compassion and it's a risk factor for having those symptoms. Yeah. That's the thing. It's, it's, it's this, uh, it's this odd dynamic because the very thing that draws us to these caregiving fields is also what makes us susceptible to symptoms of compassion fatigue. And, and, you know, what, what really I think upsets me is that, as I've presented to groups as small as three and as large as 300. And most clinicians have no training on compassion fatigue. As mental health professionals, they're not teaching us about this, right? The physicians that I've worked with, they don't teach it in med school. The nurses that I've worked with, they don't teach it in nursing school. The educators that I've worked with never heard of compassion fatigue. Like they never knew it was a thing until they landed in session with me. And I was like, hey, let's talk about this compassion fatigue thing. Um, and, and so there really is this lack of awareness and knowledge of what's going on. And so we tend to internalize it and just blame ourselves and think that if we quit and, you know, maybe join a cruise ship as like a Disney character, <laughs> that it'll fix everything. Um, and and it, it doesn't fix everything. One of my daydream jobs, uh, <laughs> quick stop or gas station attendant and uh, cruise ship. <laughs> cruise ship entertainer those are like two of my fantasy jobs when I get a little too into into my real life I I get a little bit of like man if I worked at a gas station that happened so I yeah I you know what we do hear a lot of in uh, graduate school especially for mental health field is self-care we hear a lot of Mm self-care talk and one of the challenges with, I mean, I feel like self-care, self-care, at least in the discussions I've had lately, self-care has kind of become a dirty word uh, yeah. in the field because it's so where crazy. compassion fatigue says, look, you've got a strength and you're tired, <laughs> right? Like both mm-hmm. are there. Whereas compassion fatigue is you're having symptoms of this phenomenon. Self-care says you're not taking yourself care of yourself and that's why you're having these symptoms. Uh, self-care says, well, of course your plant died. You're not watering it, right? <laughs> Whereas yeah, compassion yeah. fatigue says like your tree has locusts in it, right? Yeah. So there's, there's such a difference in uh, the message and, and like you've identified the identity piece for uh, first responders, for nurses, for teachers uh, that, that says, no, this is something that's happening to me as a result of the strength that I have uh, versus this is something that 
is happening to me because of who I am, because I wasn't cut out to be a teacher, but also because I'm not taking care of myself. And I think that, uh, you know, compassion fatigue is really challenging that, uh, that message that so many of us were trained in. My other issue with the message of self-care is like, it blames the person it's like, oh, you're not, you know, you're not taking enough time to do things for you. And like, that doesn't help with anything. And and the way that I phrase it to the folks that I work with is this, is, you know, you can sign up and, and get like a massage subscription to one of the places, right? But if you're laying on that massage table for an hour every week, let's say you have the finances and time to be able to do that, but you're in a body that's in full on fight or flight, I don't care how long you lay on that massage table, you're not going to walk out of that room feeling better because you've not learned how to regulate your nervous system. So it doesn't matter if you go for a massage every week, you can't self-care your way out of compassion fatigue. That's not how it works. You have to, again, recognize internally what's happening, put a name to some of those symptoms, learn how to work with your nervous system. There's... um, uh, a five piece, like uh, Dr. Gentry calls it his immunization against the symptoms of compassion fatigue. And if you have those five places, that those five pieces in place, that can help you to be able to be sustainable in this field. And <clears throat> self-care makes it sound like, well, I just need to drink more tea or go for a walk. And you know, that's, that's not what it's about. Many of us do this work because of our own histories of trauma or because of, um, you know, a negative interaction that we had with a, some kind of professional at some point in our lives. And you can't self-care your way out of your nervous system responses. This is not how it works. But so many of the clinicians that I present to have never heard it framed that way. They just you don't know what you don't know. Right. So. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have suggestions for employers and these helping professions who employees are struggling with compassion fatigue to kind of help them with that issue? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. (laughs) Um, Whether or not they implement it is another thing, but I, I always think that, you know, if you're a manager or some kind of supervisor listening to this, somebody in a leadership position, Number one, have the folks on your team take the protocol. Um, they don't have to res- submit your their results to you with a name attached to it. You can set up some kind of system whereby they can submit those scores, um, you know, anonymously. But if you don't know what's going on with your team, you don't actually know what you're looking at. Uh, the other thing is, is that it does take organizational change to be able to support caregivers in a meaningful way. Um, last year, I made a pretty big career change. Um, And I took a step back from working in mental health tech. And the reason that I did that is because I know enough to recognize the symptoms of compassion fatigue in myself. And on paper, things looked very good. But I know internally, um, what it feels like to be struggling with compassion fatigue. And my big problem And why I took a step back and ended up transitioning to this role is the organization's mission was no longer aligned with my personal mission. And one of the exercises that um, I love doing with clients and, and that comes from Dr. Gentry's research is a mission statement exercise. And I actually have my mission statement hanging up in my office. It stares at me every day because it's my reminder of why I do what I do. Um, but this is part of the immunization that I mentioned that Dr. Gentry's research has put together. And it's really getting back in touch with why you do what you do. And what I found with many organizations is they tend to put profit over people. And if you're a caregiver, that's not how you work 
That's just not how your brain works. That's not what drives me to come to work every day. Obviously, I have a mortgage. I have a car payment. I need to keep a roof over my head. But what keeps me coming back to Lakewood every day, and I love my job here, um, is I love what I do. I feel fulfilled in what I'm doing. My favorite statement from my mission statement, and I will share it with the folks because I'm quite proud of my mission statement. Um, is I will live my life according to my core mission that I am here to help others. Any day that I get to do that, I go home at the end of the day feeling good. Even if I'm tired, even if it was a hard day, even if some tough things happen emotionally, this is what keeps me going. And so if organizations can recognize and give space to their caregivers to number one, explore what their own mission statements are, but also run an organization that genuinely cares about and emphasizes the fact that your folks are worth more than just the money that they may be making for the company, then you're going to have real change. I've not yet found a mental health tech company that has that as as its heart, which is why I'm now back in nonprofit. Um, that's my own personal experience. Um, but I think that if organizations are really willing to take a hard look and answer some hard questions, then they can genuinely support their people to be sustainable. Um, otherwise, you're going to quite frankly have situations like the one that I was in last year, where again, things looked really good on paper. But it was about profit and I am not a therapy robot. And my, again, this is what I've come to learn through my work as, um, you know, you, again, with Dr. Gentry, you got to go through your own stuff before you're able to teach it to anybody else. Um, I no longer determine my worth as a clinician based on the number of sessions that I complete in a week. That's never going to help me sleep better at night. And that's not what's going to drive me to keep coming back to work day after day. Right now, I can tangibly see the difference that I'm making. I work for a um, behavioral health nonprofit that serves folks with severe and persistent mental illness. And every day, I can tangibly see the difference that I'm making in the lives of people living with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. And I get to do that in a multitude of different ways. And that's why, am I tired on a Monday morning? Sure. But I'm also excited to come in because I haven't seen the residents all weekend and I want to know how their weekend was. And, um, you know, I, I have a fantastic, fantastic um, CEO that supports me and the work that I do. And, um, you know, really all of the staff here is so committed to the residents that we have the privilege of serving. And that's what keeps me coming back every day. I'm never going to get rich working at a nonprofit, um, but I'm much more fulfilled than I was. And so I can continue doing this work for as long as I choose to do this work. And I don't think that a lot of organizations come from that mindset. <laughs> so... <laughs> Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I think that the, uh, so I just read the book uh, Quitter by John Acuff. And um, it's a totally different book than what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> um, but it's amazing. And uh, he talks about personal mission statement in there. Uh, and he talks about doing that in uh, any role that we find ourselves in. So if we find ourselves as uh, a mother or a wife or a partner or a daughter or a husband um, or a, a work uh, a work role or a community service role, whatever role that we find ourselves in, um, he talks about defining the a personal mission statement for each of those mm -hmm roles um and coming back to it <laughs> when, when it comes to decision making Absolutely. coming back to it coming back to it coming back to it um because his his promise is that uh that any situation as long as we are focused well uh you talked about it with brain spotting right what we focus on uh is what what makes the difference and what we focus on grows and so uh noting for ourselves or acknowledging for ourselves what is important to me 
about this role that I'm doing? What is important to me about how I'm showing up in this relationship with this other person? Uh, that is the, he said, that key to being able to, again, have that fulfillment within ourselves because we can know, okay, this is aligning or this is not. And if it's not, okay, what changes do we need to make internal, external to make sure that there is alignment there? Um, and so I absolutely, I love that your mission statement is right there where you can find <laughs> Looks it. Looks me in the eye every day. Absolutely. And that this, is, this is, I think, like the fifth version of my mission statement. I'm actually due to do um, an updated one because that's another thing Dr. Gentry encourages you to do. It should never be a static document. It should be a living document. And every so often you need to revisit it. I haven't revisited that in a while. Um, and, you know, what I what I really like about his work is it really empowers clients. You know, I, it was a, it was a tough decision to step back from that role that I was in. Again, looked very good on paper. Um, however, it internally just was not sitting well with me. It didn't feel right. Um, there were decisions being made that were not in the best interest of the therapists. And, uh, I walked away at the right time because a week after my last day, there was a, uh, 30% layoff across the company. Um, I don't know whether or not I would have been impacted, but you know, it was so empowering to be able to choose for myself that I'm deciding to walk away because this is not aligned with who I am as a clinician at my core. And that's the first time in my professional life I've ever done that. I've always run out of fear. Always. You know, oh, I don't know this. I can't keep working here or I hate my boss, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. But your nervous system follows you. Your nervous system doesn't go anywhere. The difference was that for the first time in my professional life, I made a decision because I knew what my core values were and I knew where I was working was not aligned. And man, it was it was hard. I'm not saying it wasn't hard. But it felt so good to decide to step back and not run out of fear. And I've only been able to do that because of the work that I've done, you know, thanks to the teachings of Dr. Gentry. Absolutely. When we're running towards something instead of away yes. from yes. something, um, that that is so powerful. And it, uh, it gives us so much uh, it empowers us so much when we say, no, yes. I'm choosing something uh, over something else. Um, and I'm saying no to something that's good, right? <laughs> I'm saying no to something that's good uh, because I am accepting who I am um, mm -hmm. and that I'm going to make my life around me fit who I am versus trying to make myself fit my life and my world around yes. me. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, if you could give a suggestion to somebody on the fence about starting counseling, what suggestion might you give? Do it. <laughs> Do it. Um, you know, if you're even thinking about whether or not you should be going to counseling, then the answer is yes. And the other thing that I find most often people tell me is they feel like things aren't bad enough for them to go to counseling. Listen, we we are licensed to deal with all kinds of things. I've had people come to counseling because they got into a huge fight with their best friend. They don't know what to do. I've had people come to counseling because they are thinking about leaving their job and they don't know if it's the right decision for them. Um, you know, I've had people come to counseling because, you know, their, their, you know, dog passed away a year ago and they still feel really sad about it. And everybody's telling them that they should be over it by now. Um, so, so there's no reason too small for you to go to counseling, you know, us, our, our friends are amazing and they should be an important part of your support system. They're also too close to the situation to be objective. And so if nothing else, getting a perspective from somebody else, even doing just an intake session and saying to the counselor, listen, I don't know if I really want to do this counseling thing, but I thought I'd sign up to do an intake session. Can you just give me what your impressions are at the end once we go through these questions together? Any clinician worth their salt should be able to say to you, um, yeah, this is something we can work through. Honestly, it probably won't even take us that long. Um, or, yeah, this is kind of deep-seated work that you need to be doing. It's probably going to take you, um, you know, a couple of years to really get through all of the things that you mentioned to me, but it can be done. And it here's the other thing I think we don't often talk about. 
it takes a lot of courage to make that appointment and to go sit down and talk to a complete stranger about all your deepest, darkest stuff that nobody else knows about. And the first person that you sit down with may not be the right fit for whatever reason. And I really want to normalize that if that first person that you sit down with doesn't feel right, it doesn't mean you did something wrong. It just means you didn't find the right fit. We've all gone to a doctor at some point that we were like, never going to them again, ever. I will never, not for a million dollars, would I let that person come near me, right? Well, that's how it works in therapy too. <laughs> you know, everybody has a different approach. Everybody has a different way of doing things. And at the, at, there's so much research out there. Like, you know, does it matter um, what training your clinician has? How long they've been a clinician? Are they a doctor or not? And, and what it always comes down to, all of the research studies tell us, it is the relationship between the therapist and the client that is the best predictor about whether or not therapy is going to work for you. And as much as I want to tell you, you're going to find that perfect person the first time out. Um, it may take you two or three tries and that's okay. And it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. So give yourself the opportunity if the first person didn't feel quite right to sit down and talk with somebody else and give yourself a chance. Sometimes you got to kiss a few frogs. <laughs> I love that. Well said. Absolutely well said. Uh, and uh, Natasha, this has been wonderful to get to know you and get to meet you and learn about what you do. Um, if you're listening and you're interested in consulting or counseling uh, and you are in Florida, Oregon or Washington State, uh, you can find Natasha at Natasha LMHC for Licensed Mental Health counselor.com. Um, and Natasha, this has been wonderful, wonderful getting to know you. Uh, I feel like we could talk to you for another five hours. We would <laughs> love to have you back on the show. Sure. Uh, if you are open to that, we Absolutely. would love it. Uh, it's just been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. We thank you so much for the work that you are doing out there with compassion fatigue and, and spreading this message uh, to, to people that it's not it's not our fault. <laughs> this is something that happens and that there, the message that there is hope yes. uh, if we're experiencing these symptoms, uh, that hope is all important. So Absolutely. thank you so much. I'm Natasha Darkangelo and I need a counselor. Awesome. And I'm Krista Hunt. And I'm Julie Johnson and we need a counselor. And so do you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the You Need a Counselor podcast. We are so grateful that you're here. Now, we want to hear from you. Text us or give us a call at 515-650-3231. You can also find and connect with You Need a Counselor on Facebook and Instagram. If you've enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to like, review, or leave a comment, as all of these things help others to find and benefit from the podcast as well. If you're in the state of Iowa and interested in mental health counseling or behavioral health intervention services, give us a call at 800-531-4236. And if you're a provider seeking play therapy CEUs, you can find us on patreon.com slash you need a training. We'll see you for the next episode Sunday at five.